I invite you while you're still standing just to look at your screen. Grab out your Bibles if you want to. John 9, it says, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. He goes on to say in verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. But as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. That's good news, isn't it? Isn't that good news? I'm the light of the world. Having said these things, Jesus did something strange. He spit into the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed and came back seeing. I'm going to invite you, if you would, bow your heads and close your eyes. Let's prepare our hearts this morning for, I love as Dylan said it, a, a movement of God, a move of God, God working and moving. And I want you really just to come to the understanding today that we don't need to pray that God shows up we need to show up. It's not a question of if God is going to be here. This is God's house, not that he dwells here only. He dwells in the hearts of his believers, of his followers. And so the question is, are we going to arrive today with proper expectation? Are we going to arrive today with open hearts, with open hands, with open minds, ready and willing to receive instruction and teaching from his word, even though it may come up against what we desire, even though it might come up against what we feel. Are we willing to surrender? Are we willing to sacrifice? Are we willing to come with proper expectations to a God who loved us so deeply that he sent his son into the world to pull us from the world which we broke to begin with? And so I wanna challenge you as my brothers and sisters, Take a moment right now and just confess before your Father that you are here, that you are showing up with open hands, with open hearts, with open minds to receive all that He has for us today. His word will not return void. Take a moment right now, converse with the Father, speak with Him. Right now where you sit, take a moment. God, you are so good. You are so good and we declare that you are the Lord of all. Everything is in your jurisdiction, in your control. We love you. We declare that there is no God but you. There is no Savior but Jesus. We are your people. We desire you. We long for your return. We look forward to the day where you will wipe every tear from our eye and take away every pain. And this is our promise. This is our great hope. 
which is found through Christ Jesus. He is at the center. We lift him high so that he will draw all men, all women, all children to himself. Save us, forgive us, heal us. Move today, Father, through your word. Speak to us in powerful ways that we cannot shake, that live with us long after we leave this day. It's in Jesus' powerful name that we all said amen. Hey, turn and shake somebody's hand. Welcome them here today. And let's get in on this. I think it sounds good. <clears throat> All right, so we are in part two this morning. I really don't normally do uh, multiple, you know, parts. I like to kind of cram it into one teaching if possible. But the topic of pain and suffering is one that is is immense, to say the least, and. It's not even going to really be one that I'm going to be able to get through completely today. You know, I'm not going to be able to say everything, but I do think that between our first teaching and the context there and and we're going to share today, I I hope that this will at least begin to um, really open up and give some foundation to the question of, of why there is pain and suffering in the world, and so we're going to be still in, in John chapter 9, that's where we are all this month, and uh, we're just in the first few verses, clearly we're going to jump around a little bit to give some context, but just, just to give a little bit of, of, of backlog here, you can go back and listen if you'd like, um, I hope that you're having good conversations in your small groups, by the way, if you're not in a small group, you, I promise you, you really are missing out, that, that is... That is the lifeblood of our church. That's where you're going to grow in your relationships with, with each other. That's where you're going to build new relationships. I promise you, you're going to be stretched in your relationship with Jesus Christ as well. Hopefully, there's, there's good depth in conversation. I believe that there is. Um, and, and so, that's, I, I find that, that I grow in conversation. Does that make sense to anybody? Uh, some things need to be talked about. I need to ask questions and uh, at least how we currently run things now, there's really not that opportunity for you to ask too many questions during a sermon. We're, we're seeing what we can do to remedy that. We're going to try a couple of things in the near future, not today, but in the near future, we're going to see how we can accomplish some of that because the point isn't just to get together and have a large group of people. And I really want to make myself clear with this. The point of our church is not that we would just have a large group of people get together and fill up a room and make it look good. The point is that we get to know God more. The point is that we get to know how scripture impacts not just the way we live in the world, but how we view the world. A biblical worldview is crucial for us to not just survive, but to actually live through this thing we call life in a way where we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Are you guys with me today? Does that make sense? That is the goal. So, while I do love that there's a, a lot of people coming to this church, calling this church their home, that's wonderful. But I would say this, I would really, really love it if the people in our church really began to know their God at a deeper level. I'm just going to say this, I don't want to take too much longer. We live in a day and time 
where it is becoming more and more, increasingly more important that you know your God and that you know what you believe and, apologetics, that you know how to defend what you believe. It's not enough just to say you believe a thing. Tell me why you believe a thing. Demonstrate why you believe a thing. Show me why you believe a thing. All right, that's my, that's my whole thing. Let's get into it today. Uh, we got a lot to do. We got a lot to go through. So it's going to be a little bit like a, like a fire hose today. So I hope that's okay. Take notes. We're a church that worships in spirit and in yeah, that's truth. We need to write that down. We're going to open that up in our small groups and discuss it. Um, first thing, first thing, let's get into this. Man, I'm excited today. You guys excited to be here? Yes? All right. All right. So six of us are going to be pumped about today. That seven, man, that's a, there's a lot of pastor jokes. I don't know if you get that. That's one of them. I go to it all the time, pastor jokes. Uh, so just to get a little bit of context, we see Jesus having a conversation with his disciples. His disciples are asking this question, which is a normal question, you know, hey, Jesus, here's this beggar. He is blind. Why is he blind? Like, why is he blind? Was it him that sinned that caused him to be blind? Was it his parents? Now, keep in mind, we covered this before. This came from a poor theology, a poor Jewish theology, which believed that uh, it's called prenatal sin, which believed that you could actually sin before you were born. And so some of you are like, yeah, I felt that with my first kid, like he was kicking, you know. They actually believe that a child who would maybe kick a little bit in the womb was actually demonstrating anger and that was sin. And so they thought that before birth that children could sin. And so maybe if he was born with an affliction, if there was child, a child born with a, with a um, you know, some, some type of deformity, that it was due to his sin. Jesus says, no, it's not that he sinned, it's not that his parents sinned. But rather, uh, this, this took place so that the works of God may be able to be demonstrated through him. And, and I think there's a deeper question that the disciples are asking. Yes, they're asking, did this person sin? Yes, they're asking, why is he blind? But they're asking something deeper. And this is the deeper question. In our modern context today, it sounds something like this. How can a loving God allow pain and suffering to exist? How can a loving God allow pain and suffering to exist? And I know this is the question. This, there's, there's like one, two, maybe three big questions that many Christians are scared they're going to get asked. This is one of them. We get really nervous, right, when we're maybe sharing our faith or maybe having a conversation over coffee. And one of our friends who, who they might go to church, they might not, they might be a re, consider themselves spiritual or religious or not, but they bring up this question. They say, hey, let me ask you a question. If God is loving, then why is there pain? If God is loving, why is there suffering? And what you have to understand is this is a complex question, but it's also a very important question. And it's a question of theodicy. Write that down, would you? Theodicy. Theodicy is the question of suffering and God. That is what theodicy is. Pain and suffering and the existence of God. And, and, and due to little, I'm going to be honest here, the result is due to a little to no apologetic familiarity among the Christian community, this question has created a vacuum that many have been able to step up into to offer answers as to why they believe God allows pain and suffering. We covered some of these last week, the week before. One of the reasons that pain and suffering exist, many people would say, is because there simply is no God. The fact that there is pain and suffering is evidence that there is 
know God. Another answer would be the reason there's pain and suffering is because God is unable to do anything about it. Another answer that we hear is the reason that there's pain and suffering is because God doesn't care to do anything about it. And what you hear in those last two questions is what we would classically call the Epicurious Trilemma. The Epicurious Trilemma. And it says this, if God is unable to prevent evil, then he is not all-powerful. If God is not willing to prevent evil, then he is not all-good. Have you heard this before? This is the Epicurious Trilemma. If God is unable to prevent evil, then he is not all-powerful. If God is not willing to prevent evil, then he is not all good. The point being, if God is willing and able, then why does evil exist? So, where does that leave us? I mean, when it comes down to it, let's just, when it comes down to it, if God is who God says he is, if God is who Christ claimed him to be, if God is who scripture teaches us that he is, why is there pain? Why is there suffering? And as I said, I know this sounds like a complex question, and it is. And maybe for some of us, this has even rattled us and our faith to the core. You ever had one of those situations that rattles your faith to the core? I know I have. Where you're battling the way you feel versus what you believe. This is one of those questions. You can go about half of a lifetime believing the goodness of God, then walk into a season of suffering and everything you know and everything you believe about God is called into question. I've seen it. You've seen it. Maybe you've lived it. Maybe you're walking through it now. And for many of us, if we don't know, if we don't have an understanding of, of God and, 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 and the reason for pain and suffering or the reason behind the allowance of it, what we do is we do one of two things, really. We either just walk away from the faith, which I've seen, or we pretend like the question doesn't exist. We stuff it way down deep, like we, all, like we all do with our other anxieties and with our other difficult things and the trauma and the abuse. We, we just push it way down deep. I want you to know, God does not desire for you to live with your biggest questions unanswered. God does not desire to have you stuff your pain, stuff your trauma, stuff your questions about him down deep so that you never have to think about them. No, not that at all. Not at all. 1 Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Let me ask you, Christian, do you know how to defend, how to answer this question? According to God's word, we must not only know, we must be prepared. We must be proactive. And so it begins with this as we jump in. I want to ask you a simple question. Who do you believe God to be? Can I ask you? Who exactly do you believe God to be? Who is he? This, at its core, by the way, is a worldview question. And I do want to spend just a, a quick, brief moment on this. I say it all the time, but that's because I believe it to be so important. As followers of Christ, it is explicitly important that we hold a biblical worldview. And you would say, why? Well, because to hold any other worldview is not just a different worldview, it's expressly an anti-biblical worldview. 
Let me just say that again because this is very important. You'll come up to people who would say, well, I don't believe in Scripture or I believe in portions of Scripture but not the entirety of Scripture. And so what you have to understand then is any and all views that they would hold about the world, about God, are not just different than the Bible. They are anti-biblical. There is a biblical worldview and an anti-biblical worldview. Listen to me, brother. Listen to me. This is more important than ever right now for you to understand. It is more important right now for you to teach your children a biblical worldview. We live in a world that is expressly anti-biblical. I still hear people talking that we live in a Christian nation. My friend, we live in a post-Christian nation. I know that might sound shocking to you. I know that might be difficult to, 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 to take in, but that doesn't make it any less true. The things that we watch, the things that we produce, the laws that we, that we get behind, the, the legislation that we rally behind, so often, they're not just different than scripture, they are anti-biblical. Are you with me? Does this make sense? And so what I'm telling you is that it is more important for you than ever before to know what you believe, why you believe it, to pass that along to your children. Knowledge is power. Can I just hear you say amen to that? Knowledge is power. And there is no greater power than the power found in God's word. So it makes sense that if I really want to be plugged into the strongest type of power, I need to be plugged into God's word and allow it to inform my life and my actions. Amen? Come on, I wish I had a church to preach to today. It's beautiful out. Amen? Amen. It's so important. And so here's the deal. And this is going to undergird the rest of today. You're going to get tired of me saying this. You're going to get tired of hearing this, right? Because we, we know the descriptions that Scripture puts out about God. I mean, John 1 says God is light. 2 Samuel, God is the rock. Psalm 54, God's our help. Deuteronomy 4, God is merciful. Psalm 50, God is righteous. The Scripture says he's holy, that he is love, that he's just. And we have no problem talking about those attributes of God, do we? We love the characteristic of God being righteous. We celebrate it. Man, we sang songs. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. God is our protector. We worship that. We, we sing about it. However, there is one thing about God that I really haven't heard a sermon about lately. There is one thing about God that has, to be honest with you, become quite unpopular. One thing about God that we just don't hear too much about in our culture, and it's this, God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. And here's why this is so important. God's sovereignty is at the very center of holding a biblical worldview as it pertains to pain and suffering in the world. Listen to how Paul says it concerning the sovereignty of God to the letter he wrote to the church in Colossia. Colossians 1, he says, for by him, verse 16, all things were created. Let me hear you say all things. Now this is important. It's not some things, it's not a few things, it's not most things, it's not 99.9% .9 of things. It's all things. That means all things. That means the sun that you see, created by God. The stars that you observe, breathed out by the breath of God. The world that we live in, the light that you have, the hair on your head, everything created by God in heaven and on earth. Notice this. Not just the things we can see, the visible things and the invisible things. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, pause, you got to understand right there, that's a supernatural reference. 
Rulers and authorities? Dominions? What's he talking about? He's talking about a spiritual realm. He's talking about the things that we don't see, the things that we'll never see until we are with God in heaven, the things that have not been revealed to us. How many of you know, no matter how far we get, right, no matter how good Elon Musk gets, we are not going to make it to the edge of space. There are just some things we're not going to see. And you might say, well, then why did God put him there? Because he's God. Because he can. Because he's sovereign. And he doesn't answer to you. He doesn't have to tell you why. He can just say, because I'm God. And that demonstrates his sovereignty. That demonstrates his, for lack of a better term, bigness. <laughs> his bigness, his sovereignty. He's in control. Not only that, he says all things were created, look down, through him and what? What's the next word there? For him. For him. What is creation for? It's for God. Who is creation not expressly, for, primarily for? Me. It's primarily for God. We'll get to that in a minute. And now here's the, the, the big part. He says, and, and he is, God is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If you're looking for a biblical understanding of God's sovereignty, it will be this definition. Write this down. God is all-powerful and all-authoritative to the extent of being able to override all other powers and authorities. God is all-powerful and all-authoritative to the extent of being able to override all other powers and authorities. In other words, God is in control even when the world seems like it's out of control. Come on, church. God is in control of things in the world even when the world seems out of control. Now just let that sink in for a moment because if this is true, then full circle, why does he allow pain? Why does he allow suffering? Can I just encourage you this morning? Can I just tell you something? I pray as an encouragement to your heart today. I pray that it brings you some peace surrounding this issue. Okay? Listen now. Very closely. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Say that again. God permits, or maybe another way to say it would be, God allows what he hates to permit, to, to, to accomplish what he loves. So the real question is, what does God love? What does God love? Well, we know from scripture, such as John 5, 8, that God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We know John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son to die for the world. We are the world. So what does God love? God loves us. God loves you. God loves the world. God loves humanity. Now, now, now be careful. You got to balance that with the sovereignty of God. Don't think that God loves you more than he loves his glory. God loves his glory. It is who he is. It is, it is at the center of who he is. But God loves you. He loves you so much that 2 Peter 3.9 tells us this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, 
but that all should reach repentance. That word wishing there is the Greek word balome. And wishing, although it's a, it's a valiant effort at an interpretation, the better word there would be desire because that's what balome means. God's desire is that no one should perish. Perish how? Perish into eternal separation from God. See, God's desire is that every one of us would find faith in Jesus Christ. And you've got to understand this. This gets to the meat. Listen now. God is delaying his coming judgment. God is delaying his coming judgment in order to give people further opportunity to repent. God's balome, God's desire is that no one, would, uh, no one would perish without repentance even though people will. Hang on, put on your scholar hats here for a second, okay? God's desire is that no one would perish even though people will. And you could say, well, doesn't that make God not sovereign? That seems like it would make him not sovereign if his desire is that people will not perish without him, and yet people do. Doesn't that make him not sovereign, right? Well, God did not desire for sin to enter into the world, and yet he allowed it. God did not desire for Jesus to be brutally tortured and, and, and betrayed and, and murdered on a cross, and yet he allowed it. God does not desire pain and suffering in the world, yet he allows it. It, it is not God's desire for people to perish and enter into eternity without him, but he will allow it. Listen, if you live a life making decisions separate from God, if you make a life living out decisions separate from God's word, if you live a life where you're saying, I want to be separate from you, God, I want control, then God will give you the desires of your heart, and in eternity, you will be separate from the God you live separate from your whole life. And that is hard to understand, but a grace and a demonstration of love from our God. See, the problem isn't with God. The problem is me. <laughs> I mean, it's you too. Don't, don't like throw me up here, okay? Under the bus. <laughs> I, thought it was, I thought this was your problem, Trev. The problem is us, and the problem deeper is our understanding of God's attributes. We say that God is loving and gracious, but we try to assign human understanding to the love and the grace and the justice of God. Scripture teaches us very clearly his ways are not like our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His love is on a different level, but here's what we miss. It's not that, please listen to me now, please. I want you to look at, I want you to look at the person sitting next to you. We, in church world, we call him your neighbor, okay? Look at your neighbor and say, listen, listen right now. Go ahead, right now. Right. Some of you aren't doing this. You think I'm playing. Look at the other person that you rejected the first time, the first person you didn't want to talk to, and say, listen, listen in. This is good. Okay. Listen now. It's not that, I don't want to say this. It's not that God is loving. It's that God is love. It's not that God is gracious. It's that he is grace. It's not that God is, uh, it, it acts justly. It's that he is justice. And what gives God the ability to say he is love, say he is grace, say he is just, is his sovereignty. Let me show you what I mean. I know how much you guys love it when I draw, so you can get a... I look at my backside, my bald spot. Holy cow, I need to do something about that. All right. 
<laughs> so we got, let's define God a little bit here as best we can. We have God the Father. This is the Godhead. This is the Trinity, okay? We have God the Father. We have the Holy Spirit, who is God. We have the Son. This is Jesus, who is God. Now, at the center, this is important for us to understand. At the center of who God is, many people would put this, me. This is not accurate in any, I can't even, this is not right, okay? At the center of who God is, is God's glory. It is who he is. It is why he functions the way that he functions. God will function for his glory. Now here's the deal. What you have to understand is while this is at the center of God, God's glory, this is why everything was created. Uh, scripture demonstrates that all things were created in him and for him. This is the for him right here. It's for his glory. It's the demonstration of his godness. Okay? So while this is at the center, the definition of God is his sovereignty. This is the definition of God. God, and what defines God, is his sovereignty. The attributes of God, however, are things like love, are things like grace, are things like justice. And so here's the problem. You don't get the attributes without the definition. We want the attributes but we don't want the definition. We want a God who is all loving all the time, but not a God who is in charge of everything and doesn't give me the control I desire because that's not a loving God. We want justice through what we declare justice, not as God defines justice. But what you have to understand is that when God says, I am love, that's a sovereign statement. When he says, I am grace, that's a sovereign statement. When he says, I am just, that's a sovereign statement. And so what God declares, listen now, this is going to hit you. What God declares just is just because he's sovereign. What God declares is gracious is gracious. Not based on my worldview or my opinion, but based on the sovereignty of God. If God showed up today and said, that wall is purple, guess what? That wall is purple. If God shows up today and says, you have black hair, I would say, okay, right? My hair is black. And you say, that seems ludicrous. No, that's a sovereign God. That is the single entity in all of the universe that is able to make that statement. That's what sovereign means. Now, I know there's a lot of people that call themselves sovereign. They're not sovereign. Can I just tell you something? I love you, but the control that you believe you have is an illusion of control. You do not have control. You do not have control. Well, I do have control. No, you don't. Go outside. Uh, the other night, we were, we were scheduled to have some friends over and have a big fireworks display at our house. My wife made me work for a week and a half every single day, trimming the yard, pulling out poison ivy. I got it all over my ankles. I, I had to power wash. I, bow, I borrowed one of my friends' power. I'm power washing the house. Friday afternoon, rain, 90% chance of rain. I'm like, if you think you have control, go command the heavens to hold up the rain. You will very quickly realize... I do not have control. And the control that I believe that I have is an, Ill an illusion of control. 
We love to worship the attributes of God, but listen to me, church, not the definition of God. God is sovereign. That is his definition. Because if God ceases to be sovereign, then God ceases to be God. We need, we want, we long for a sovereign God. We need a sovereign God. We desperately need for God to be sovereign. So because of his sovereignty, what God does, regardless of how I feel about it, is by definition loving, gracious, just. And it may be hard for us to wrap our minds around this, but this is, church, listen to me, this is why our faith must inform our feelings, not our feelings informing our faith. Jesus tells his disciples in verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must get away from thinking that we are the ones that get to define what fair is. And I know this is hard. I know this is difficult. This is, this is why we don't talk about this. Listen, the reason you don't hear many teachings on the sovereignty of God is because we don't really like the sovereignty of God. We want to control things. We want our cake and eat it too. We want things our way right away, and we live now in a culture where that is available on next level. When I was growing up, and I'm going to sound like an old man here, when I was growing up, I didn't have a cell phone, not because we couldn't afford one, but because they didn't exist. My son the other day asked me, Dad, how old were you when you got your first cell phone? I was 19 years old. Why? They didn't exist. They didn't exist. No, and the internet wasn't around. The internet wasn't around? How did you live? I don't know, right? But it offers us convenience. It offers us an illusion of control. We have to get away from thinking that we are the ones who get to define what we deserve or what fair is. God is not like us. His ways are higher than our ways. He is mysterious. And listen, the greatest day of your life was when you realized God is sovereign and I am not. Because that is the day that you can surrender. And you don't have to like it. You don't have to desire it. But it is not going to change one iota the sovereignty of God. God's sovereignty is not affected. Don't take this the wrong way. Take it exactly the way I mean it for you to take it. God's sovereignty is not affected by you, your decisions, your life in any way, shape, or form. Because God is sovereign all by himself. God is sovereign without any of your help. God has been sovereign. God will be sovereign. God has always been sovereign. God will continue to be sovereign. When we are standing at the throne, kneeling, casting our crowns before him, he will be sovereign then, just like he is sovereign now. He has never changed. He is not learning. He is not getting better. He is not righting his wrongs. He has been exactly who he is, how he has always been. He is God. God, the sovereign one. And so back to my question that you didn't ask that I'm asking for you. If he's sovereign, why then all the pain? All the suffering, why? If he can do something about it, why doesn't he? Ah, listen, he did. He did. That is the good news. 
because God is sovereign, because he is holy, because he is righteous, because we live in brokenness and sin and our depravity runs so thick and deep, God sent his son into the world. Why? To save us? Yes. To redeem us? Yes. To restore all things back to himself? Yes. And so while my friend, I cannot promise you that the more you tithe, the greater you'll be healed. I cannot promise you that the more you serve, the better your life will go. I cannot promise you that even if we anoint you with oils and pray over you with hands laid on you, that your, that your leg will be healed. I can't promise you that. But as a follower in Jesus, regardless of the disease, regardless of the trauma, regardless of the pain, regardless of the hurt, you will be healed ultimately one day in heaven. And that is a greater gift that is a greater love, that is a greater grace, that is a greater justice than being healed here in a temporary sense. God didn't come to give you temporary healing. He, gave, he came to give you ultimate healing. And you say, what do I have to do to get this? Tell me, sovereign, and that you're not. Believe what Scripture teaches of him. Scripture says that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. My friends, it doesn't say might be, doesn't say could be. It says you will be saved. Well, don't I have to contribute anything? Listen, the only thing you contributed to your salvation was the sin that made Jesus' death necessary. I don't think you heard me. He said it again. The only thing you contributed to your salvation was the sin that made Jesus' death necessary. I think we've contributed enough. The only thing left to do is to fall to our knees, to hit our face and say, I am not God, you are. And what you say, I will do. Despite how I feel, despite how the world looks, despite what my friends say, Despite what my flesh craves, despite where my mind goes, despite where my addictions want to take me, I am surrendered, I am sacrificial, and I am living as Christ would dictate. And you might say, well, I got to get a couple things straight before I can do that. No, you don't. What are you, what are you, you fool? What are you talking about? You can't do a thing. I got to get it right. You don't get it right. Jesus gets it right. He takes you just as you are. Well, you don't know my struggle. You're right, I don't. I don't really want to know it. But God knows it. And he's chasing you. He's chasing you. He loves you. But he loves you enough that if you decide to live a life separate from him, he will allow you to live an eternity separated from him. But here's the good news, my friends. If you turn to Christ, he will save you. He will forgive you and he will heal you, and even if it's not in this life, you will be healed, and one day every pain will be taken, every tear will be removed, every injustice will be righted, and you will dwell with God in heaven forever, where there will be no more death, where there will be no pandemics, where there will be no more hurt, where there will be no pain, anybody excited about our God, where there will be no more, yeah. And the list goes on and on. Where there's no injustice, where there's no racism, where there's no hatred, where there's no rioting, where there's no fill in the blank. Why? Because this is not where we were meant to be. 
This is not our home. I talk to so many Christians who are like, it's just got to get better. It's just got to get better. No, may- maybe, maybe not. But if not, I'm out of here. I'm doing my time, man. And I'm out of here. Bow your heads. Close your eyes right now. Eyes closed. Heads bowed right now. I want to ask you. Do you know this God? Not are you familiar with this God? Not do you have an understanding of this God? Do you know this God? Have you surrendered to this sovereign being? Scripture teaches us that he sent his son to do what we could not, to live a perfect life and to die. And on the cross, his righteousness, when I surrender to him, is counted as mine. And my sin is counted as his. And my sin was taken to the grave. And your sin was taken to the grave. And Jesus Christ rose again to conquer sin and the grave. My friend, your sins are forgiven. But you need to turn to Jesus. Place your faith in him so that his righteousness is counted as yours. Eyes closed, heads bowed, no one looking around. I want to give you this invitation. And a church building is not the only place to make this decision, but it is the one this morning that I'm praying you do. If you want to know this God, if you want to place your faith and your hope in the sovereign God and His Son, Jesus Christ, would you pray with me? This is not a prayer that, these words aren't magic, but they do indicate that you are stepping in faith. Let's pray, God. I recognize that you are sovereign. Save me. Forgive me. Heal me. Restore me. Jesus, you rose from the grave to conquer death. Forgive me of my sins. Make a home for me in heaven. I will learn what it means to live a life surrendered to you. In Jesus' name. Every eye closed, every head bowed. No, not one person looking around. This is your first step in becoming a true follower of Jesus, and I want to pray for you. I'm not going to run out in the crowd and tackle you, but I want to pray for you. I think your first step should be one of boldness, yeah? So when I count to three, if you prayed that, you meant that to your greatest ability, I want you to lift up your hand. When I count to three, in boldness. And then I want you to meet us over in the side. We've got a front area. We'd love to for you to fill out a card, love to put some resources in your hand. But if you're ashamed to raise your hand, come on, one, two, come on, don't be ashamed, don't be afraid, you prayed that, you mean that, you raise your hand, one, two, three, right now, you lift up your hand, yes ma'am, yes sir. All right, for those of you who were, you know, you're the ones who jumped second, right, you let the first people go first, you make sure it's safe, this is your turn, do this one more time. You prayed that prayer, you meant it, come on now. You lift up your hand. One, two, three. Right now. Yes. God, thank you for how you're working, how you're moving. In our church, in our country, you are working and you are moving. You are doing all things and bringing all things together for your good. We believe it. 